This is The Bible in Depth with PJ. Join us as we take a deeper look into scriptures and study the Word of God together. Now here is Pastor Jim. Well, hello, everybody. We are back. It's Wednesday Bible study. And if you're joining us for the first time, uh, we do studies through the Bible. Typically, it's a verse by verse through a book. But right now, I'm going through the uh, through Psalms. And I'm not doing every Psalm because there's 150 of them. I'm doing selected Psalms. And today, we're going to cover Psalm 37. It will not be verse by verse per se, so I'll, I'll, I'll piece it together because the topic that I've chosen to extract from here and many people look at Psalm 37 as a parallel to the Sermon on the Mount, but I'm not going to go from that dimension today. I'm going to take it from the dimension of quit fretting. A lot of us fret, don't we? And you'll understand more what I mean by that as I go along. Let me start by telling you a little story. During the pandemic, it was five months ago, um, another of my old high school buddies, in fact, this guy was my best, best friend. We became best friends. We met each other in sixth grade also, and we just always hung out together. Got along great. Uh, played basketball together. And um, while I was studying away during the pandemic and on a weekend, you know, because, or when, yeah, a weekend, and uh, he said, hey, you close by? Uh, he goes, because he was golfing out there in uh, Dos Lagos. I go, yeah, I'm right here. I'm over at the crossings. <laughs> he goes, I want to show you my new car. And he had told me about a Corvette brand new. I go, okay, I'm here. Let's go for a ride. So he, he comes in and Boy, it's a red Corvette. It's new, man. He takes me in there. He punch. We get on the freeway. He punches that thing, man. It's pinning to the seat. It is awesome. Now, let me tell you right now, I love Corvettes. In fact, when I was 20 years old, I bought a '63 Corvette, the one that has the convertible hardtop. But I like the Stingrays best, and I like the split window even more, even more the '63 split window. But I love Vets, and he's got a brand new Corvette. And then he tells me this, he goes, he goes, yeah, because I, I know him. I go, you got payments on it? He goes, no, nah, I just paid it cash. <laughs> and, I, and I knew it, you know, and I, I won't tell you how much he paid, but he just paid it cash, you know. He, he worked all his life, he's retired. And, you know, and then, you know, we parted ways and he went his way. And let me tell you something. I like Corvettes. I'd sure like to buy a new one and pay it cash. But that's just impossible, okay? <laughs> uh, even when I sold my old Corvette, I sold it when I got married because it didn't make any sense anymore being a married person with a Corvette, and so I got rid of that. But my friend who came and showed me his Corvette, he wasn't rubbing it in my face, but let me tell you something. You're not a Christian. Oh, he's everything but a Christian. In fact, one time he told me, somewhat intoxicated and a little bit angry, uh, he said, I just can't believe somebody could rise from the dead. And I thought, oh, okay, you know. But you know, it would be easy for me to look at him as he drives away in that bet, sit there and think, I've been serving you for 41 years, God. In fact, <laughs> a couple of months or a couple of weeks, can't remember exactly, after I became a Christian, I began to tithe, and I've never stopped. Whenever uh, there's been an ask for giving above and beyond my tithe towards projects or different things, I've always done it. And I found that giving makes me very happy, and I found that you bless me as I give. It's a true, it's a true thing. I, I feel sorry for Christians who never trust you that way. But I've been doing all that. Serving, tithing. 
I can't pay cash for a Corvette. I can't do that. I don't think Olivia let me buy one, period, but I can't pay cash. But he can do that. And I thought, I could easily say, you know, it's just not fair. It's just not fair that you can do that. And here's where I want to take it. Because I think this is where David is talking to us in this psalm. As a Christian, it's easy to look around and especially look at a non-believer and say, why does that person, they don't even know you, they don't even want you. Why, 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 why are they having this kind of financial prosperity and they can get those things? And I know you and I serve you and I, t- and I can't get that. But it doesn't even end there. You can look at a believer and say, I serve more than them. I don't even know if they tithe. I do. But I know I serve more than them. And man, look at everything they've got. And look at me. It's easy to fall prey to those things. And we got to be careful with stuff like that. We can, we can fret about it. This is what David, David's going to deal with that. <clears throat> he's going to talk directly to it. And we need to listen to what he's saying. In Psalm 37, he tells us how to deal with this problem. So I'm going to get in there and I want to show you what, what he's telling us here. In verse 1, David says, do not fret. Now I'm going to define that in a second. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious towards wrongdoers. David says, don't fret. You know what it means literally? Don't get heated up. Don't get all worked up. Worked up about what? Worked up about evildoers and wrongdoers. Why would I get all worked up about evildoers and wrongdoers? Well, jumping to verse 7 in Psalm 37. He says this, rest in the Lord, wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him or her who prospers in His way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Ah, don't get all worked up and angry because you see someone who is not living for God or living immorally or maybe even doing uh, cheating deals or whatever it is and look at what they have versus what you think you should have. Don't get all worked up about it. And let's be honest, we've all gotten worked up about that one before, some way, somehow. So David's going to teach us how to not get all worked up about that. He's going to give us some valuable insight. I can use it. You can use it. So here's David's reasons for not fretting. The first thing I want to tell you that David says is there's a pool date on the prosperity of wrongdoers. There's a pool date. Now look at verse 2 of Psalm 37. It says, For they, the wrongdoers, will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Hmm, okay. There's a pool date on their prosperity. There's a pool date on the prosperity of wrongdoers. Now, I, you know, I, I've gone shopping with Olivia to the grocery store a few times. I'm not going to say many times. It's like the least favorite thing I like doing. But sometimes we're somewhere. She goes, can we go in there? i got to get a few things. Now, you know, if you're married to somebody, they're going to go in the store and get a few things. And you wait in the car. You think it's going to be a minute? Oh, no. A few things, that's like a half hour. 
because she's going to find other things with the few things that she needs to buy. And I've learned that over the years, and so it helps me to stay calm and not blow up the car. <laughs> so I've gone shopping inside the supermarket with Olivia. And one thing I learned from her, because I think when I was younger, I didn't really look at it, but she looks at the pool date. She looks at when an item, the date it should be used by. Because after that pool date, it's like use, drink, eat at your own risk. See, the pool date is the moment when that thing goes bad. Well, God is telling us here through David in verse 2 that there's a pool date on the prosperity of the wicked people, of wrongdoers. There's a date it's all going to go bad. And whether that's on earth or whether that's in eternity. But he says, they wither and they fade. So that's the first thing David says. There's a pool date on that stuff. The second thing David says is fretting can lead me to incorrect conformity. Fretting can lead me to incorrect conformity. What do you mean, Jim? Look at verse 8. Um, he says, cease from anger. What a good word, huh? Stop being so angry. And forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. Ah. So my fretting, my getting worked up, my getting angry over what somebody else has and what I think I should have and they shouldn't have or however that works, especially with an evildoer, a non-believer, an immoral person, I can start to conform my life to an evil lifestyle to get what I want. And that's dangerous. I can start to cut corners. I can start to fudge, cheat. I can start to do things immorally to get what I want because I want what they have, God, and it's not fair. It can lead me to incorrect conformity. I conform to them. Now, the Bible teaches me this in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Now, watch this. This is the New Testament writer, Paul, great theologian. He's a brilliant man, highly intellectual. Scholars love him, both Christian and uh, skeptic and atheist scholars. They view him as somebody who's got validity to his life. And so he writes these words. <clears throat> he says in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Mm. I'm to conform my life not to incorrect conformity because of evildoers and I want what I want. I'm to conform my life to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, let me define some things. The word conform means to fashion into. Some of you like probably work pottery clay. You're fashioning that thing. You're the potter, there's a clay. We're the clay. And we are to allow ourselves to be conformed into what? Into the image of Jesus Christ. What does the word image mean? The moral and the mental likeness of Christ. Hmm. You see... Unless I get a mental truth in my life here, I'll never conform to the moral image of Christ. See, I'm not to conform myself to things out there at all. I'm to conform myself to the moral and the mental image of Jesus Christ. But a lot of people incorrectly conform based on, oh, I want that and it's not fair this or this and that. See, everyone is conforming into something or someone. Everyone is. But not everything is worth conforming into. 
We should conform into the image of Jesus. You say, well, Jim, I don't conform into anything. Okay, whatever, guy. Everyone's conforming into something. Everybody's doing something. There, you know, people say, I'm a pace setter. Okay, but there's plenty of other parts of your life you've conformed to something. And smart money says, conform to the image of Jesus Christ. See, if I get all worked up over what wrongdoers have and how they're getting it and I don't have this, then I have a tendency to lead me down wrong roads or I'm going to conform to in, uh, into incorrect lifestyles or images or this and that. Now, let me kind of take this a step further. It's an illustration, biblical illustration. In Numbers chapter 11, it would be worth reading. They're traveling through the desert, the Israelites, and it's getting tough. And they want to eat meat now. And they start to think back to Egypt and all the things they ate there. And it says, and the meat that they ate in Egypt for free, which is stupid. They never ate for free. They slaved seven days a week. There's nothing free. And they got the scraps free. Isn't that funny how memory can play tricks on us? It was so good back then. Really? Was it? Was it? Now, let me tell you the problems with these people. The first problem is this. They're free. They're not slaves anymore. And free people have to take responsibility for themselves and not depend on others to do it all for them. That's a problem in our society right now. The culture is shifting that way. It's ridiculously irresponsible. There's no dignity in somebody else giving me everything. There's a great dignity in being responsible and earning my way. See, they're not victims anymore in Numbers 11. They're free. And free people can pursue. And they're free to pursue. And they're free to make something of their life. They're free, and with freedom comes responsibility, but they're still thinking like a slave. The second problem there is this. Have you ever noticed that complaining exaggerates the problems in the present? When I start to complain about things, what I don't have and what they have, it exaggerates everything. I'll look at what I have, and I, it's, I hate this. It's, it's dumb. It's stupid. And then you sound like a teenager is what you do. But then the third problem that I see is this. There's a big one. They're in the desert. They've left Egypt. They're complaining about what they have because they're comparing it to what they expected to have. See, when they left Egypt, they expected all these things to come, all this stuff, and now they're in the desert, and what they have does not compare with the thought of what they would have, what they should have at this moment in time. That's a problem. That's when you start looking around, saying, that's not right, that's not fair. I should have this by now. Did you take the steps to get there? Did you go through the struggle to get there? Did you stay morally right, walk the right path to get there? Because if you didn't do any of those other things, then you've been irresponsible. And why should anybody give you anything? You're not even responsible with your own life. Now, they begin to despise something in Numbers 11. They despise the manna. Manna is what God provided for them every day. Six days a week, 
get twice a month on the sixth day, so the seventh day, you just rest. God wanted them to rest. They never had a day off in 430 years. And the manna is a great picture of Jesus Christ to come because Jesus said in John 6, I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven. Now they despise it. You put it all together, if we're not careful, if you are not careful, we're going to start looking around like, well, they have that and they have that and I don't have that and I thought I'd have this by now and I'm going to be upset about that. And you know what, God? I don't even like man anymore. Jesus, picture Jesus. I don't even like you anymore. Why am I serving? Why am I tithing? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing it? And then what do we do? We start going back to Egypt. You know, it was better in Egypt. We had meat there. We ate for free. And then all the lies begin to come into play and Satan's a liar. Did I make sense right now? It's easy to drift into old ways. It's easy to go back to Egypt and start living like that. But it's dangerous. Because, see, it goes back to my point. Fretting can lead to incorrect conformity. Fretting, getting all worked up over what you don't have and what somebody else has, can lead to incorrect conformity. I start to live like them because I'm going to get what I want in this lifetime. And this lifetime is a vapor. It's here and it's gone, man. The third thing I think David says is this. I know David says, he says, hey, look, if God can laugh at the wicked, shouldn't I be able to not be agitated by them and their prosperity? If God can laugh at them, watch this verse 13. The Lord laughs at him. God laughs. That's not the first time that's been stated in Scripture. The Lord laughs at him. For he sees his day is coming. Oh. God sees the end result of the wicked and their prosperity. God knows it's coming. God knows they're going to get a different payday in eternity. Did you know that? And I like paydays, by the way. The candy bar. And we all like real paydays. But let me tell you what I think that's saying to us. God's disposition is not affected by the prosperity of wrongdoers, evildoers, non-believers. It's not affected. And if God's disposition is not affected by them and their prosperity, then mine shouldn't be either. I'm envying the wrong thing and the wrong people. Because, see, I should be conforming to the mental and moral likeness of Jesus Christ. It's just that simple. So what's David's remedy? Because we've all got the problem, don't we? What's David's remedy? Well, I'm going to give it to you from these verses. The first thing is faith cures fretting. Look at verse 3. He says this. Trust in the Lord and do good. That's a great statement, huh? Just keep doing the right thing, guy. Jim, just keep doing just God. And he says, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. I like that. Let me tell you the thing about faith. <clears throat> faith simply is focus, isn't it? Let me explain. We live in the day of cell phones. And boy, everybody's got them. And boy, do they occupy our time. And boy, do you really need to take some social media breaks throughout your day and not be so tuned to that thing. Because number one, it's just it's affecting your thinking. Number two, it's feeding you too many lies coming through that thing. Anybody can post anything on there. And if you believe it, good for you. You're in trouble, man. But they take great, I mean, some of the pictures with these phones are incredible, are they not? Now, back in the day, before cell phones, we had real phones that were attached to walls with long cords on them. We, remember those phones? We couldn't take it and try to take a picture with it. And... When it started to ring, 
you know, in my day growing up, uh, if you didn't get it by the fifth ring, they'd hang up on you. And you wouldn't even know who called or why they called. And guess what? We didn't even care who, who it was or why they called. To nowadays, oh my gosh, did I miss something? Stop. What do they call it? Uh, FOMO, fear of missing out? FOMO, fear of missing out? We weren't, we weren't afraid of that at all. But here's the thing. Back in my day, we took pictures with actual cameras. Some people still do this today, and they love it. I had a can. I bought it when I was 20. I think I was 20. I bought a Canon AE-1 camera. Now those cameras, you had to adjust the focus yourself. It wasn't like my phone where I could take a picture; it's automatically focusing. No, I had to adjust the focus, and sometimes my pictures I didn't adjust it right, and they came out blurry. And you hated that because you took the roll of film in and you paid for it to be developed. That was it, buddy. And you get it back. Oh, my gosh, 36 pictures, all blurry. So you wasted, you wasted money, you wasted time. Focus is important. Focus is really important. Faith cures fretting, and faith is a focus. Let me show you. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews uh, chapter 12, Whoever the writer is of Hebrews, nobody really knows. Um, it says this in verse 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, and it's talking about the witnesses they're talking about in chapter 11 of Hebrews, great men and women of God of history, surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance <clears throat> and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. The author. He's writing the story of our life. And the perfecter, the finisher of faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Despising the shame. And sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You could do a series on those two verses. But I'll just pull out one. I'm going to extract one thing. He says, I'm going to fix my focus on Jesus. That's what I'm to do. Fix your eyes on Jesus. You know what it means? The literal idea is, 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 is great. It means it's the idea of looking away from everything else and just focusing on Jesus. He is the target. He is the goal. He is what I want to be conformed to. Mentally, and morally, he is the one. I keep my eyes on Jesus, and if I focus and I have faith in that and I walk that way, it cures my fretting. Does that make sense? Good, I'm glad you agree. Now, the second thing that David's remedy is for fretting is this. This is a big one, and I'm going to explain it all. Delight should always precede desire. Delight should always precede desire. Look at verse 4 of Psalm 37. Watch what it says, and I'm going to explain it. It's a great one. It's a great truth. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Oh, we love that statement, desires of my heart. Oh, yeah, I want the desires of my heart. But wait a minute, let's dissect it. I'm the delight in the Lord. Delight precedes desire. I'm the delight in the Lord. The word delight, means to be pliable, means to be moldable in Him. 
So I'm to be pliable in God's hands. Oh, and if I do that, then He gives me the desires of my heart. But wait a minute. Hold the show. We got to think about that one. Because then it must mean that, and this is the key to God's answered prayer in many cases, that if I'm moldable and pliable to God's will, I'm conforming to the moral and the mental image of God. I'm doing what He says versus what I want to do. That would change my old desires, would it not? And that makes sense now because if I'm conforming to Him and molding to Him, then He's changing my old desires into new godly desires, right? It's, it, you don't have to look back very far to know this is true. Do you remember when you became a Christian? If you really had an experience with Jesus, didn't a lot of your desires change like that? You once pursued that, but you knew that that was immoral now, and your heart changed, and now this is the road I'm going to go. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to do this. What happened in that moment? The Spirit of God came to live in us. We repented, and God replaced old desires with new godly desires. So that means this, guys. <clears throat> when I'm moldable in God's hands, when I'm pliable to Him, He changes my heart. He puts in new desires. He puts His desires in my heart. Oh. And now that I have these new desires that are His desires... And I pray those desires out to God that He already put in me. Well, I'm praying in the will of God now. And He can answer those desires. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense to me. Let me flip the coin for a second before I get to the next idea. Our culture... Our culture puts desire first. In fact, desire dictates morality in our culture. They've said no to the Word of God for its, as, its, as the moral compass for society. And now, if you really think about it, and you've got to think this through, the market decides morality now. They market everything to us. And we sit there and make decisions based on what they're marketing at us. We will decide whether that's right for me or not. And what I mean is this. That we make decisions based on, will that give me satisfaction or will that frustrate me? That's how we make our moral decisions these days. That's what people do. They've eliminated this, and now I decide based on, will that give me satisfaction, or will it frustrate me? Look, just because you can, and you can afford it, and you can do it, doesn't mean it's right. But that's what the way the society says. And that's why, little by little, there's an erosion of morality in society, because it's all based on what they feel, and what they, will it give me pleasure? Then it's good. Not necessarily. 
Not necessarily. You go down that road, you're opening up a can of worms that many people have. Now, see, delight. Let's go back to the issue. Delight always precedes desire. But desire without pre-delight will always lead to disappointment. Because you're going to go down a wrong road, it's going to disappoint. Now, now, let's go to the third thing. And that's this. Surrender lightens our burdens. When we surrender to uh, Jesus, to God, it lightens our burdens. So, <clears throat> isn't fretting about what other people have, isn't that a burden? <laughs> sure, I think it is. <laughs> We're just looking at where they have that, and they have that, and it just is a burden. Look at verse 5 of Psalm 37. He says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. Now, the word commit, really interesting word David uses. It means, um, it means to roll, like rolling something, as if to get rid of a burden. You're rolling this heavy burden away. You're co- I'm rolled, I'm rolling. Now, let me try to put that in, in an idea. Once we get, give our ways and our ideas and roll it to God and God puts new desires in us, life gets lighter. We've rolled those old things away. And God puts the new things in us and we pray those new things and God can answer that and we're not fretting anymore. We don't get all worked up anymore. We're just like, it's, it's, there's no more heaviness. We've rolled it away. I've committed to God. I've given it all. I'm giving it away. I'm giving my life to Him. I'm moldable now. I've rolled it away. Does that make sense? Makes makes a lot of sense to me. And that way I'm not going to get all worked up. That way there's no more heaviness in my life. or It's eliminated a lot. Now, <clears throat> now let me close this, this baby up. Let me, let me show you how David finishes his thoughts. In verse 9, 10, and 11 of Psalm 37, he says this. For evildoers will be cut off. Mm. But those who wait... For the Lord will inherit the land. You find that in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. There's a pool date on wickedness and wicked people. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Don't just look at, oh, prosperity. No, 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 look at what he said. Waiting is an element. Humility is an element, along with everything else we've said. You take waiting and humility, along with faith, which is a focus on Jesus, we said, and then a surrender and a rolling away of everything who we are and letting God remold us, that result is an inheritance. It's simple. And in there he says the wrongdoers, they're going to be cut off. But God takes care of his own and walk in this pliability. If let me, let me tell you something. This is about justice. And there's so much screaming about justice and people don't even know what justice means anymore. Because they're all bitter and angry and you know what, if you get justice with bitterness and anger, after you get justice, if you ever get it, you're just going to be left with what? Bitterness and anger. And wow, how did that help you? But let me tell you the great thing about God. And it really, some of us will not get justice in this lifetime. But there's an eternal justice. 
And as a Christian, you better remember that this isn't all there is. Because if you think this is all there is, you're going to go down some wrong roads. There's a life beyond this one. This is a vapor, and eternity is a lot longer. Now, thank God for eternal justice. Now, let me close this whole thing up with this story. In Luke chapter 16, to try to piece with everything I just said together, Lazarus and the rich man, they both die. When Lazarus gets there, and the assumption you must make is Lazarus is the Christian, the rich man is not. Lazarus would sit at the rich man's table just hoping for a crumb to drop off. And so you know he's had a tough life. And the rich man, he's been in splendor. He's got, he gave whatever he wants. But they both die. And they end up in two different locations. Lazarus, who we assume is the believer, he goes to paradise with the believers. The rich man, who we assume is not a believer, he goes into Hades, torment, eternal fire, constant thirst. And in hell, he's talking, trying to talk to, to God. He says, God, you know, you know, we'll do this and this and this. And he says, God says to him, Remember? Remember that in your life you received good things. You had a really good life. And you weren't very nice. There were poor people around you. You didn't help out. You didn't do anything. And now you're getting your reward. Now you're getting your reward. See, justice, there's, a, there's justice in eternity. And he says, but Lazarus, who's the picture of the believer, he suffered a lot. He didn't have good things. But now he's being comforted here. And the good things are coming his way in eternity, which is a lot longer than life, physical life. And he finishes by telling the rich man, you're just in agony. And you'll be in agony forever. And forever is a long, long time. And there is no end. You see, believer, there's always something where you and I will look at somebody else and say, not fair, not fair. Why do they have fill in the blank and I've been serving you, I've tithed, I walk morally right, and they get that, and I don't. See, what you lose track of is time. Eternal time. That's why patience comes into play. Because there will come a moment, if it's not on earth, in time, everything flips. And when the good things will come your way. And all the things that you and I were jealous about and other people that didn't serve God, it won't even matter. It won't even matter. Because we'll be comforted in eternity. And that for me is 
um, a great thing because it helps me to overcome fretting, not to get worked up about what somebody else has and what I don't have. I may never get the Corvette on earth, but who knows what I might be driving in the New Jerusalem. Oh, hey, God bless you. Hopefully this helped you some way. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us. If you have any questions or need prayer, please send us an email to hello at nbcc.com. We'd love it if you would subscribe to this podcast and take a second to rate it. Until then, we'll see you next time.